Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Today with special guest Jesse of the Cherry Colored Twist Etsy shop, here to tell us all about vintage and antique buttons. Hello, Jesse. Hello. Happy to be here. Now, I've got to say, I'm super excited because buttons are one of the vintage topics that I am fascinated by, passionate about, and completely ignorant of. Wow. It can be a little overwhelming. There's just so many buttons. There's so many. <laughs> like, I, I am basically good for if a button is antler, bone, or ivory. My mother is extremely excitable about buttons, and yet none of us are super good at identifying them. All right. You know, it takes a lot of practice. I've been collecting for about eight years, and... I'm now to the point where I'm fairly comfortable identifying like most materials, but there are still some ones that stump me. And yeah, it's a lot of just like sort of handling them and getting to know the materials. But what you said about being a crossover is spot on because buttons are a crossover to a lot of other antique interests. And even though you said you know nothing about buttons, I guarantee you do because you have used them on your clothing. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You are right. I can fasten them. I can sew a button on. Uh, um, Ooh, all right. Yeah, I got my basic clothes repair skills. Yeah, that's even like a step above most people. Aw, shucks. Thank you. I was going to say, way to flex on your (laughs) co-host. Do you know about the trick to like wind the thread around the other threads that you've sewn to like make a little shank to protect it? (gasps) No. Do tell. So if you like are sewing on either a sew through button or a shank button, sew through button has holes. After you do your like, you know, in, out, in, out, you just kind of above the fabric and below the button wind the thread around the like up, down threads that you've sewn. And it makes a little protective sheath around the up, down threads that makes your button stay on longer. Oh my God. Oh my God. Button hacks, everyone. Button hack. Now you know. Yeah, so I could start out with a little history of buttons, if that's a good jumping off point. Sounds great. I would love to hear more. So there have been button-ish things dating back to like possibly as early as 7000 BC. Whoa. But they're most likely ornaments that were just kind of like attached to clothes and not actually fasteners. Oh, that's wild that they had an ornamental use before they had a practical use. Right? Yeah. I don't know why that is. I got that from an article called The Westward Journey of Buttons on (laughs) aramcoworld.com that seemed exhaustively researched. In terms of fasteners, knot and loop buttons, sometimes they're called like frogs. It's like a cloth knot with a little cloth loop date back to China to about 1000 BC. And that was sort of the first instance of a button type thing being used to fasten your clothes together. And then the sort of modern quote unquote buttonhole and button that we think of today dates back to about the 13th century. Which is pretty amazing if you think about like the the basic mechanics of buttons not having changed in now 800 years. If it's not broke, don't fix it. (laughs) If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Most buttons you'll see sort of out and about in the collecting world are going to be 18th century or newer. They just didn't hold up real well because they got used for stuff. And most pre-19th century buttons, so that's 1800s and earlier, were for men. We'll get into that a little bit, but you may remember some periods in history where men got real fancy. Oh yes, fondly (laughs) do I remember. (laughs) And buttons were kind of like a status symbol, so you had, you know, fancy metals and stones and you were basically just being like, look at how rich I am. (laughs) And then in the mid 1800s, women shifted to become the predominant button consumers. And were buttons associated with wealth because it meant you had the damn time to fasten them? (laughs) 
Um, I don't know about that. Possibly. <laughs> like, I'm so I, leisurely. I'm going to sit here and button my shirt. I, I think at that point in history, pre-zippers, it's really kind of the only way to get yeah, you're right. things on. Because, like, you know, that's why we have button hooks. Because it's just like, well, no one's invented the zipper yet. So eight million tiny buttons down the front of my waistcoat. Let's go. And that's not to say that, like, poor people didn't use buttons. They just used, like, really utilitarian buttons. And the gentry used real fancy one so that's kind of the nice thing about buttons is there is really something for everyone both in collecting and in usage runs the whole gamut yeah people have been collecting buttons for a while now it's not exactly like a new hobby uh the national button society was formed in 1938 so that's coming up on 100 years not too far from now oh wow but even before that a little bit of personal history i grew up in connecticut so not too far from y'all. And even though I didn't really get into buttons until after I moved out of Connecticut, Connecticut has a very rich button history. The Waterbury Button Company is there, which makes like some huge percentage of all uniform buttons. Whoa. Yeah. And then an interesting button collecting tidbit in the late 19th century. So like 1860s to 1900, button collecting was like a fad with young ladies. Oh. I don't know if you've ever heard of charm strings. No. Charm strings were basically like a string that you strung a bunch of buttons on. Usually they were sort of like gifted. You wouldn't like go out and buy them, but you would like swap with your friends or sometimes they would be like little like I like you gifts. That sounds like a precursor to charm bracelets almost. It kind of is. Yeah. And and there was sort of various circling myths of like, if you, you know, got your 999th button, then, you know, you'd meet the man of your dreams or whatever. <laughs> In 1886, the governor of Connecticut, John H. Ting, or Tingyu, I don't know, spelled like tongue, but with an I instead of an O, offered a prize of $50 in then money. <laughs> to three ladies under the age of 20 who collected 2,700 unique shank buttons, so no two alike, on a string in 30 days. What? Whoa. And he received 90,000 buttons. How much free time <laughs> did everyone involved have? How many buttons did everyone involved have? <laughs> like, so many. And so much, apparently. And so he donated them all to the state of Connecticut, and they are still housed in the state library, I believe. That is incredible. I'm trying to imagine yeah. being the, the collections manager with just like, great, <laughs> how many? 100,000? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but they're all unique to you. Yeah. yeah. And there's actually a kind of button named after John Ting, called the Ting. Oh, I have one. They're quite rare and very nice. They're like layered glass with layers of foil in between so you can like see the different colors of glass. Oh. They're very gem-like and pretty. I don't know if this is button specific, but there is a competition element to collecting buttons. Is this like a thing in other collecting fields? Do you know? Absolutely, yes. I Well, it, it depends on how structured it is. If it's just general, like, waggling your accomplishments, then 100%. But, like, there really isn't a lot of structure to it. Very structured. Like, ribbons, points. Oh, that, okay. I that actually say. That might be unique to buttons. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So then I can tell you a little bit about the competition aspect. Please do. <laughs> I had no idea. This is something I was unaware of when I started collecting buttons also. And then I joined my, at the time I was living in upstate New York. So I joined the 
New York State Button Society. And I was like, what? I was a little intimidated at first because there's like called the Blue Book that's issued by the National Button Society every couple of years. And it's got like classifications. And this book is the basis for competition awards. Usually they're sort of sponsored by like clubs or like collecting clubs or state societies. And there will be like money prizes. So you can enter, sometimes it'll be themed, so it'll be like bird buttons or transportation buttons, or sometimes it will be like very categorically specific. So they want like a celluloid assortment. So you want to have like one of each kind of celluloid classification. Oh, wow. Yeah, it gets real. If you are the type of person that loves minutiae, button collecting may be for you. <laughs> that's that's really intense. So it's like a cat show almost, where it's like, yeah, in the yeah. celluloid division, we have... Exactly. Um, so people will enter, like, cards that they have mounted the buttons on, and there has to be, like, a specific number for various kinds of awards, like 20 or 25, and then you get points based off of, like, you know, the kind of assortment of either images or materials or whatever. It's pretty intense and at first I was like oh man that is not for me and now eight years in I'm like this is totally for me <laughs> <laughs> so have you entered a competition like this yes I have entered a few in New York and now I live in Colorado so I've entered a few here for the state shows and um I've won two blue ribbons oh hell yeah I've also had several trays disqualified because I did not read the uh rules correctly <laughs> oh ah, it'll happen it happens Happens to the best. Um, I've never entered at the national level, so that'll be my, you know, down the road step to strive for. I was going to say, that's next. That's your Rocky moment. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty fun if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, sounds like. What categories have you entered in? Mostly I've entered the sort of like more open-ended ones. The one I entered most recently and won a blue ribbon in was just pictorials. Oh. So there's four categories. There's plant life, animal life objects and then other and other like is huge and includes all different kinds of you know everything from operas to people to transportation to children's illustrations you you, you name it and it's in the other category wow yeah i got a blue ribbon for that nice yeah is there a specific <laughs> way that you have to mount the buttons like do you have to sew them onto the card or yeah so i can talk a little bit about the um preferred method of storage which also is how they're presented for awards which is a 9 by 12 piece of matte board like you would mat a picture with and then have you ever stripped like an ethernet cable and there's all of those little teeny copper wires with plastic coating on them yeah yes so like two inch pieces of that People used to use like pipe cleaners and stuff, but as you have mentioned in previous episodes, some materials like celluloid don't really like being next to metal. No. It makes them degrade. <laughs> if they get wet, they can rust and then, you know, you got rusty wire holding your button on, not to mention the tetanus. Um, so plastic coated wire is the preferred method of attachment. And you just kind of like poke some holes in your mat board with an awl or uh, I like to use a corn cob holder. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, thinking ahead. Let's thinking with your noodle. <laughs> Actually, when I joined the Colorado State Button Society, they like send a little kit out to new members that has like a big piece of foam to put your mat board on so you don't stab yourself in the leg and like a little corn cob holder. <laughs> Aww. And uh, yeah, so you just like poke holes, put the button on, thread the wire through and twist it on the back to hold it on, which sort of keeps your buttons in one place, but also not clinking up against each other for glass and things like that. They can chip if they're all in a big jumble. And contrary to what your grandma might have stored her buttons in, it's better to have them with like some air circulation. 
You ever like opened up a jar of buttons and it smells kind of like weird and vinegary? Yes. Yeah. What's up with that? That's um plastics and other materials degrading and making gross smells because um, they're oh. all in there with like a bunch of other things that they don't like to be stored with. So yeah, like your metal and your celluloid don't really want to be kept together. Sometimes even your like other plastics just like need to breathe a little bit. So the jam-packed, like tight, enormous jar is not the best method of storage. It's really not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I gotta make some changes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. We have to go. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta go free okay. them. <laughs> So I have like my my nicer buttons mounted on matboard, but it is like kind of a laborious process. I like do it while I'm watching TV. And then I have my sort of like more everyday Joe buttons in one of those like like a little plastic cabinet with little drawers to store like nuts and bolts in. Okay. <laughs> they get some air circulation, but I don't have to like mount every single button I own. So that's my temporary storage solution. Do you want to talk about materials? What what kinds of things buttons are made of? Absolutely. What kinds of buttons have you seen things made out of? Antler, bone, ivory. Of course, always in contention with someone thinking one is the other. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Jet. Uh, I've seen jet buttons, although not as frequently as people claim. But have you seen French jet? Uh, th- unfortunately, more often than the jet, yes. <laughs> And celluloid. And that's about where, like, I can stop being able to name them. Got a percha? Yeah. Other uh, pre-plastic rubbers. Did you already say hood? I didn't. I did not. That seems like an oversight. Consider saying hood. (laughs) I'm sure you guys have seen one of the most common button materials, which is Mother of Pearl. Yes! Lots of those. That was, like, the go-to shirt button before plastic. And, like, a huge industry in the United States... Uh, let's see, I think it was maybe turn of the century, so like early 1900s, Muscatine, Iowa, on the Mississippi, discovered that they had like these huge quantities of freshwater shellfish. They started manufacturing buttons. Muscatine is actually known as Pearl City because of that. Wow. And at the peak, they man- they manufactured 1.5 billion buttons a year. Damn. That's crazy. There are a lot of them out there in the world. (laughs) So chances are if you have some mother of pearl buttons, you've got some muscatines? Good chance, yeah. Especially in this country. That's wild. And I think we exported them too, so. I don't know that you could like, unless they're still on their original sales card, I don't know that you could like distinguish a muscatine Iowa button from another pearl manufacturing button. They all kind of look similar. (laughs) But yeah, it's just kind of cool. And uh, I saw a display once that had like the shell with the button blanks punched out of it. So it's just this like big, you know, oyster like shell with a bunch of holes in it. That's crazy. Okay, I never in a million years imagined that the process was literally like take a punch and punch it out of the shell. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like such a like a Tex Avery cartoon method of doing it. Yep, that's pretty much it. And then they'd like grade them and polish them and drill the little holes in them and pass your buttons. Yeah. Wow. I've got a question about material very close to my heart. Sure. When you were determining what a t- one material from the other, do you use your teeth? Sometimes. Yeah. 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 Vindication. <laughs> Vindication. For I think of you every time you mention biting something. <laughs> I don't bite things. Exactly. But like, you know, one of the good glass tests to see if you have a glass button is to like tink it on your teeth. Because if it's glass, it'll go tink. And if it's plastic, it'll go tunk. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. And you know, I know you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Sometimes it's overwhelming because people are like, oh, how do you do this? And you're like sweating because you're like, 
you're gonna have to get really cool about me saying tink and tunk like you have to feel in your gut what i mean by that because i don't have any better way of describing it (laughs) you're gonna have to bite it yourself man i don't know Oh, man. Yeah, it's true, though. A lot of my shortcuts have been scraping, like, Mother of Pearl against my teeth for the grit. Yeah. I'd say that's the the main thing I use my teeth for. I use my cheek a lot, because, like, a glass or a shell button will be cold to the touch if you're, like, in a not in a super hot room. And one that looks very similar in plastic will feel much warmer. Ooh, that's a good bit. That's a good uh, bit of advice. It's a good bit of advice, and you don't have to put it in your mouth, which, for some things, is probably good. <laughs> I mean, you know. It probably does make you look a bit sentimental if you're shopping out in public, though. (laughs) Just pressing buttons to my cheek, yeah. Just, oh, it's so beautiful. (laughs) Oh, sweet button, I found you at last. So some other materials that you did not mention. So you got celluloid. I have a ton of celluloid buttons. Like, for a very delicate and flammable plastic, just tons of these puppies have survived. (laughs) And some of them are, like, super cool, and they're very inexpensive. Ceramics. That's everything from, like, what are known as china buttons, which are, like, small porcelain buttons. Sometimes they're super plain and white and not very interesting. There's the calico ones that had the calico patterns transferred onto them. Oh. As mentioned in Little House on the Prairie series, I think Ma has calico dresses with calico buttons. I had never known what that meant. Yeah. Other kinds of ceramics, there's Satsuma buttons. Which tend to be a little pricey. Like Satsuma pottery, they come in button form? Yeah. Oh! They're gorgeous. Well, there's D's day. (laughs) I recently just felt comfortable enough with my financial situation to buy a couple sets that someone was selling on Etsy. And I was like, that's a good price. I'm going to need it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I support this. Enamel are some lovely examples. Usually they're 19th century. So there's all your kinds of enamel. There's your Champlevé enamel. Your, is it bath? tie where they like engrave the metal and then put the enamel over it yes and there's a plique jour which i think is plique jour is is with like almost stained glass where there's no metal behind it yes yeah there are some buttons that are plique jour but they are fairly rare because as you might imagine they're really delicate (laughs) yeah it's a very breakable uh form of enamel Uh uh-huh yeah but they are absolutely gorgeous Fabric is a pretty ubiquitous button material, like covered buttons. And you may be picturing in your mind like 1980s bridesmaids gowns with like the matching floral prints or whatever. Wow, you nailed it. That's exactly what I was just thinking of. (laughs) (laughs) Shoot, that was kind of scary. You're like, how did did she know? So yeah, plenty of those, but also going back earlier, there were passamentary buttons, which are sort of beaded or have sequins sewn onto them or were a little bit blingier. Horsehair buttons, silk buttons, velvet buttons. There's some pretty nice old fabric ones too. Even ones with like little like tiny cross stitches in them or embroidery. That's crazy. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Wild. The like amount of effort that people put into making these tiny things is like mind blowing sometimes. If I saw someone on the street and I looked and they had a hand embroidered like cross stitch button, I think I would fall over from the flex. Like, you win. That is the highest effort outfit I've ever seen. Yeah. That person gets a round of applause. (laughs) Glass. 
Lots of glass buttons out there, like tons of glass buttons out there. Glass has held up astoundingly well. You guys talked a little bit in your jet episode about, and earlier you mentioned French jet. Yeah. Most black glass buttons that you see are black glass. They are not jet. There are a few jet buttons, but they are pretty rare. I don't have any. I have seen them, but never like come across one in the wild, so to say. The They've pricing always is always like... obscene too, like because it was breakable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and just doesn't hold up as well as glass, which is you know easier to work with and durable. And you're suggestion about the temperatures very good for telling the black glass from jet yeah yeah jet will be warmer for sure and have you guys heard about the float test no no i don't know that you would do this with like most jet things like jewelry because there's other components there and i haven't tested this myself but i know if you put a black glass button in a glass of water it'll sink to the bottom but apparently jet is supposed to float whoa whoa what? that's gonna save a lot of jet buttons <laughs> <laughs> I thought Ken might be particularly interested in this next category, which is related to horn. So you mentioned the antler buttons. But a lot of buttons that are called horn, quote unquote, are actually other parts of animals all kind of melted down and pressed into like a type of plastic, basically. What? And some of those include blood. <laughs> there are blood buttons. Blood Made buttons? with blood meal. Yes. Mm -hmm. Blood for the blood buttons? Blood Under for the, the blood buttons. buttons. The other big one was hoof, hooves, hoof. Hooves. Yeah, when you when you started, I was like, okay, they're probably talking about like hoof. Yeah, blood. That's so cool. Sometimes they throw in like blood meal and other stuff as kind of like a binder. Yeah, so blood and hoof. That is rad as hell. But mostly they're called like molded horn, even though they're not strictly horn. People will mix up horn and like hard rubber because they look kind of the same. It's kind of a dull black button with like things molded into the top of it. One way you can usually tell the horn buttons is they are sort of like layered. If you look at the side, you can kind of see like the lamination of the water hoof made out of keratin. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just different types of keratin. Yeah. The hoof capsule. And a lot of times they will also have insect damage because buggies love those little hooves. Yeah, there is no part of an animal a buggy won't eat. Yeah. That's free minerals right there. Free minerals. Yeah. For the taken. <laughs> <laughs> For the munching. Metal, lots of metal buttons, all kinds of metal buttons, brass, copper, aluminum, steel, sometimes lead, although luckily lead was not super popular for buttons because it's so dang soft. Too squishy. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, right? Pewter, occasionally precious metals. I have a couple sterling silver buttons. Ooh, now that's a flex. No gold ones. Again, the softness. So yeah, brass, brass is going to be your big one. It looks great. It holds up. Button makers love their brass. Is there a way to tell a faceted metal button from a glass button? Because that's something I actually run into a lot. Maybe just my taste in buttons. Literally your taste in buttons because you're trying to tell by putting them in your mouth? Well, that's the thing is in your mouth, metal and glass feel pretty similar when they're faceted. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'd look at the shank. Glass buttons will either have like a metal shank that's pressed into the glass or like the shank will be glass. Like it's all one molded piece. And metal buttons, usually it'll either be cast, um, so like a cast loop, or it'll be two pieces, so there'll be like a sort of a top piece crimped over the bottom piece, Oh, if that makes sense, with like a, a shank applied to the bottom piece. Glass buttons are always, almost always going to be one one piece. All right. Also, if the glass has the luster on it, like a silver or gold luster, it'll usually only be on the front side, not on the back side. Aha. Uh -huh. What else? Plastics. So many plastic buttons. So many. Some of them are collectible. Some of them collectors don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times, like, I will go to a flea market or an antique store or whatever, and I'll see a jar of, like, quote-unquote vintage buttons, and it's just, like, all white shirt buttons. And they want, like, 20 bucks for it. And I'm like, no, man. 
you don't know what you're selling, but you're not going to sell it anyway. So <laughs> at least not to me. But yeah, some of them are collectible. Bakelite is a big one. Bakelite. Oh, Bakelite is, a, is Bakelite a hot seller for buttons? Bakelite's a hot seller. And that's a crossover too, because button collectors love Bakelite, but also Bakelite collectors like Bakelite buttons. All your new plastics, nylon, polyester, cellulose acetone, acetate, casein, which is a milk protein-based plastic. Milk what? buttons. You guys have talked a little bit about the hot needle test for some plastics. Yes. Specifically in not in not being recommended for celluloid, which, oh God, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only if you want a small explosion. If you hot needle test a casein button, it's supposed to smell a little bit like burnt milk. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Milk button. I gotta get one. Milk button. And then, yeah, rubber, hard rubber, Goodyear rubber, patented a bunch of buttons, so you can find Goodyear rubber buttons. That's one of the the sort of subcategories that I like to collect because they're all marked. Oh, perfect. Oh, thank God. <laughs> In the excitement of, of marked collectibles, it's like a really nice place to start, and they're, yeah, you know what you have when you have one. A collectible that's always marked is like a cool cloth on the forehead. It is like, <laughs> oh, oh, thank goodness, I'll always know. <laughs> it is flipping over the pillow to the cool side. Oh, it's such a Exactly. And then wood, you guys mentioned. And then the last one of note that I will bring up is vegetable ivory. What? Vegetable ivory. What is that? What is that? It is a palm nut called the tagua palm or corozo nut. And basically it's like a super duper hard seed that people carved into buttons and also other stuff. Oh, okay. I'm sure you've seen it. They make the Chinese puzzle balls out of them. Yeah. Oh. It's super hard. It's super smooth. It is a very good substitute for ivory. Doesn't hurt any animals to get it either. Nice. So that was actually a pretty popular material in the, the 19th century. Because it was pretty cheap and looked nice. Uh, so a lot of like pants buttons and suit buttons and stuff you'll see. You can kind of recognize it because it is so dense that it doesn't take dye very well. So if you've ever seen a button that's like, you know, green or blue or whatever on the outside and you flip it over and it has like sort of a cream color where the shank was dr- the shank holes were drilled through it, that's probably vegetable ivory. Oh, wow. Oh. I want to find some now. Yeah. <laughs> Once you know what to look for, you'll see them for sure. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a hairy eyeball on every single like big jar of buttons from now on. Like, ooh, the secret's <laughs> in there. I know it. <laughs> oh man, a big jar of buttons is like crack to me. I just I gotta <laughs> I gotta know what's in there. <laughs> I was going to say, that is one thing that I am familiar with button collectors is that it is one of my favorite areas of collection, which is the one where occasionally you can just get a big, big, big box or jar of it and sort through it all day. Yeah. The sorting is huge. My mom told me that when I was a kid, I used to just like sort through her button box and like separate out all the metal ones, separate out all the shiny ones. (laughs) It's good, clean fun, dang it. It's good, clean fun and like, you know, borderline therapeutic depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, as I've been listening to your backlog, because as many collectors are, being a methodical completionist, I went back to the beginning. I feel you. I just listened to your episode on postcards and I was thinking there was a lot of crossover when you were talking about like easy intro collectibles and I would totally put buttons in that category because you can get a pretty cool collection for not a lot of money. They're small. They transport pretty well. And they've got such a heavy amount of variety that there's something for everyone. There's something for everyone. Exactly. Do you guys want to hear about some kinds of buttons that I collect particularly? Yes. Yes, please. So I used to work at a um, an upcycled fabric and sewing store. Oh, that sounds fun. People would donate their stuff 
and then we would sell it and use the profits to offer sewing classes for kids and teens and adults. And we had some scholarships so people could, you know, do it on a sliding scale. But I managed the store, so I sorted all of the donations and, like, prepared things for looking nice to get sold. And that's kind of how my button bug started. Because I was like, man, there's so many cool buttons. And then I discovered there was the whole collecting world with societies and competition and all that. And I was like, oh, man, this is a deep hole. Guess I'm jumping in, though. (laughs) In I go. I started out collecting mainly what at the time they were made were pretty utilitarian buttons, but now are kind of cool and fun. So small chinas. The calicos and stencils are another sub-classification of china buttons that have sort of just like pretty simple geometric designs like transferred onto them. And Goodyear rubber buttons, as mentioned, easily marked, easy to identify, a fairly closed set. So there's a, a book published about all the designs that up to this point have been found and cataloged. So you can sort of work your way through the set. Wow. Work clothes buttons are really cool. Those are one of my favorites. Those are going to be the buttons that were on coveralls and work jackets in the 1900s, 1910s for people working on railroads and that needed sort of durable clothing. They have all kinds of cool slogans that attribute the clothes toughness. There's a brand called Can't Bust Them. <laughs> Boss of the Road. Yes. Some modern ones are still around. Carhartt is still around. Oshkosh. Yeah. Carhartt's having like a big moment right now. Yeah. Yeah. So all those, and they have like cool designs on them of bulldogs and trains and buttons that have words on them are called verbals. 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 Buttons with pictures on them are called pictorials. <laughs> Love it. So there are lots of verbal and pictorial buttons in the overall, in the, the work clothes button class, which is kind of cool. And they just like, they got like a really good look when you got a group of them on a card like cool these were all like used ones (laughs) let's see and another more recent discovery and connecticut button history connection for me is cult buttons they were made in the 1930s to 1950s and they are a division of what do you think of when i when i say cult with your antique brains the gun yeah the gun wait the guns made buttons well i mean the people who made the no, the guns, the guns were shooting buttons. <laughs> People don't make buttons, D. Guns make buttons. <laughs> you come up, I got 12 buttons in this chamber. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it. The Colt Plastics Division was a division of the Colt Firearms Manufacturing Company in Hartford. I'll be. If you've ever driven down 91 and you were going through Hartford and you saw a big blue dome with a horse on top and a bunch of gold stars on it, that's the Colt building. No way. I saw their grave. That sounded weird the way I said it just now. Um, (laughs) I was looking for it. I I was an antique Colt pistol enthusiast for a while. Samuel Colt's grave? Yeah. Uh, Weirdly, weirdly Egyptian. It's an obelisk. Did he die in like the 20s? Yeah. Oh, I guess that was kind of the thing. Well, there's your Egyptian revival right there. It's that, yeah, that was like, I mean, they, they like dialed in hard. Yeah. I also like how you called it their grave. <laughs> oh, I think the whole like, Cole the family whole... is interred around <laughs> the, the monument. I just I'm like, well, yeah. Pa- pack in the factory, boys. It's time to bury Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's like the queen with her corgis. Oh, no. You guys aren't going without me. <laughs> Oh my god. That didn't happen. The corgis are fine. Oh, thank god. <laughs> thank god. Whew. 
those poor doggies. But yeah, the Colt Pistol Manufacturing Company made buttons from the 30s to the 50s. That's amazing. I think later they separated from the gun making part and were just their own plastics part. But they were mostly, some of them were phenolic resin, which is the non-trade name for Bakelite. Their trade name for it was Colt Rock. Ah, (laughs) I mean, it's a cool name. It's a cool name. And the others most people think of when they think of cult buttons are amino resin, which they come in super bright colors. They have sort of like a nice a nice hand, I guess is a word you would use for fabric, but like they don't have any rough edges. They're nice and smooth. They have sort of like a, a nice waxy appearance almost. They're not like high shine buttons. Sometimes you'll see amino buttons get that sort of crazing that you see on old plastic buttons sometimes where it's like a very Ooh. fine network of crazing across the buttons. I love that. I love that look. Yeah, it's neat. It's not as desirable in buttons as it is in, say, porcelain. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's still a good way to sort of be like, ah, yes, I know what kind of plastic this is. There is a numbered list of known cult designs. I think they're up to like 85. Wow. So again, sort of a nice set that you can collect and some hallmarks of the design. I will say that during this time, other people were also making plastic buttons and ripping off the designs. (laughs) If you go on Etsy, as we've discussed previously, with its sometimes reliable, sometimes problematic people selling things, you'll see just like every colorful plastic button people being like, this is a cult. And I'm like, it's not, it's not. Yeah. So just a word to the wise, if you're getting into that, just do a little bit of research before you go. And we're not talking about crazy money here, people. I would say the, the going rate for Colts is like between 2 and $5 a button. So you're not going to like break the bank if you're just buying a couple. But if you're going to spend $5 on a button, maybe you want to be sure that it is the thing that you want it to be. And it yeah. does make it ridiculous that someone would lie. Like... <laughs> You're lying for a profit of $5? Like, they might be lying. They might just not know. They just don't know. Um, yeah. 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 Like I said, I've fallen down some deep holes, as have other button collectors, but if you've just sort of heard about it, you could be like, oh, this this is probably it. I'll just put it up there. Yeah. Not bad faith, necessarily. Yeah, they're they're fun, and I have the sort of personal history of growing up 10 minutes from that building, so. That's really cool. It is really cool. I actually have a tattoo of the Colt building that before I even knew that they made buttons, that was just like when I, a sort of a nice memory of home. That's so cool. It's like, wow, that was, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty in a good way. Like, how is somehow new? There you go. <laughs> Oh, yeah, all this new, like, adding meaning to a cool, like, that's, just, that's a really cool tattoo. I thought about getting some buttons tattooed around it, but I haven't haven't done that yet. That would be adorable. Mostly because my tattoo coffer is being used for other things right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Child buttons, you know, the priorities. The important things in life. Important things <laughs> the baby, the, the buttons. <laughs> the button baby. I have a really cute video of my daughter when she was, like, two, playing with some of my plastic buttons and being like, buttons, red button raising her right raising her early yeah (laughs) oh man i bring her to thrift stores a lot with me and i'll sometimes let her pick out like a special thing one time we were there and she picked out do you guys remember those candles in the 90s that were like rainbow dipped yes and carved and always uglier than sin Uh (laughs) uh-huh There was a kitty, a so rainbow weird. kitty candle, and she was like, that's my one thing. And I was like, you got it, Aww. you know, special kitty candle. Aww. Good choice. She's got good taste. <laughs> <laughs> it smells vaguely like old vanilla, which is a little unfortunate, but what are you going to do? <laughs> Yeah, those, those, the only thing about those is that you can't clean them. No. The dust sticks to them so well. Yeah. No. Kitty's crevices are pretty dusty. Yeah. 
So I'm curious about one thing. Being into buttons and collecting it, have other aspects of like vintage clothing and fashion sort of sneaked their way in through the buttons in your collecting and interests? Sort of. I went to school for costume design, so I've always sort of- Well, there you go. Been... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. I've always been interested in, in the topic. The thing is with antique clothing, it takes up a lot of space and a lot of times it needs conservation skills, which I don't have or have time to cultivate. <laughs> so I've been pretty strict with myself about limiting it to small objects. I've never bought a piece of clothing for the buttons, I will say that. Or like an old piece of clothing for the buttons anyway. Okay. There are people that specifically collect vintage and antique clothes and like, I'll let them have this. <laughs> yeah. But I do... I, yeah, there have been some offshoots like thimbles, button hooks, pin cushions. I have a really beautiful sterling silver thread case, ooh, which is gorgeous and I love it. I'm like, I could sell this for like some money, but I just, I can't because I want to keep it. Yeah, yeah. Once you find an item like that. It sparks joy, dang it. It sparks joy. Yeah, you're right. Marie Kondo said I could have it. <laughs> <laughs> She's the expert. Yeah, so definitely I have a couple offshoot collections. How do you feel about people who cannibalize clothing for buttons, which is something that I've actually run into a lot? I mean, I think probably better to keep the original buttons on the original clothing if you can. Yeah. Unless it is just like in absolutely trashed shape and like there's no bringing it back. Like, yeah, then I might cut the buttons off. But, you know, if you have a collectible or displayable clothing with the original buttons on it, like, yeah, totally keep those babies together. Like, one of together. Yeah, I do agree, but I've worked pretty closely to vintage fashion people and I was surprised at the number of people who will take otherwise perfectly fine clothing and tear the buttons off and replace them because the buttons were like to them were valuable in some way, shape or form. And they were like, well, nobody's really gonna look too closely at the buttons, <laughs> which like that, I mean, don't, that's not true. Like, uh, people do, they really do. <laughs> I've always been in the camp where uh, if I see something that's going in the garbage, I might check the buttons to see if they're pretty. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I think in that situation, I certainly would. And I mean, like, the button usage history is made up of that. Like, the reason we have so many old buttons is because, you know, your grandma's grandma was getting rid of her old dress and cut the buttons off so she could sew them on her new dress. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's got precedent. <laughs> I guess, it, yeah, I guess it would depend on the clothing. Like, if the buttons kind of, like, make the outfit, you know, then definitely I would think they should stay on. There were some some pretty, like, designer buttons back in the day. Scaparelli, Elsa Scaparelli of clothing design. Yes. Like, designed some wild buttons to go with her wild outfits. You should be so lucky, but if you ever came across <laughs> something like that where the buttons were sort of, like, clearly thought of as being part of the design, like, yeah, don't don't take those off. Just leave them there. It's art. Someone thought about it. Yeah, I can see if you had like pretty nice buttons on like a sort of whatever shirt and you wanted to sell them separately, maybe? Doesn't make me feel good, but I'm not totally against it, I guess. Very, very individual case situation. Yeah, case yeah, case based. Depends on the circumstance. Have you dealt with button theft? Have people stolen buttons off of things? Personally, I have not experienced experienced that. I will say that I'm on th I'm on the show committee for our state button society and so after you enter your your trays of buttons to be judged and awarded, they're like up on display for the remainder of the show, which is usually like a weekend, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we hire security to like stay in the room with the buttons overnight. Dang, smart cuz people will put together trays that are worth, you know, hundreds of dollars and don't want someone else walking off with them. Button scandal. So 
guess there has been fear of button theft, but I have not personally experienced it. I think that might be more of a problem in like the antique malls we've worked in where people will take any small shiny thing that they can fit in their pocket and like, yeah. I can't steal this shirt, but the buttons will fit in my jeans. Yeah, yeah I'm always fascinated with people who collect very little things about um, the pocketability of them. Because when I talk to people, it tends to stress them out. Yeah. People who collect salt and pepper shakers are, are constantly like with their necks on a swivel if they've got anything even remotely silver. Yeah. It was only one situation, but there was a designer garment and presumably because they couldn't steal the whole garment, they snipped the buttons off. Oh my god, it's fucked up. Like they, t- they took our designer buttons, but it, it, because they could get away with that and not necessarily flouncing out with an entire shirt. Yeah. What are you going to do with them? Sew them onto something else and pretend it's designer? Uh- <laughs> I think they think they'll get more for it on eBay. Okay. Because people who do these kinds of petty thefts are eBay people. Yeah. Wow. And not the good kind. They're the kind, they're they're the $10,000 Princess Diana Beanie Baby eBay people. Oh, good lord. Oh, no. Yeah. Beanie Babies. Can I tell you guys sort of a Beanie Baby tie-in about my favorite button in my collection? Yes. Yes. One of my other non-button related collections, I collect platypuses. Aww. They've been my favorite animal since I was about nine. And I watched, I think it was Kratz Creatures about a platypus. And I was just like, holy, yeah. holy fuck. It's a duck and it's a beaver and it lays eggs. This is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> And like, really, the excitement is just never worn off. So I have a moderately sized collection of plush platypuses, including the mini regular size and jumbo size Beanie Baby platypuses. Yes, absolutely. And I was at the button show in New York one year and asked one of the longtime collectors and dealers, I was like, is there any platypus buttons? And she's like, yeah, there's a Victorian black glass platypus button. I think Millicent's got one. (gasps) Millicent Safro ran a shop in New York for a long time called Tender Buttons. Aww, I've heard that place actually yeah and she used to sell at the new york shows so i went and she did indeed have it and i bought it it is the most money i have spent on a single button <laughs> it was 30 dollars, and it was worth every damn penny and that's not so bad for a little luxury 30 bucks yeah and like it's my two favorite things in one thing and what a what a unique little collectible to have like for that crossover to have happened and then been in your path that is so cool that's amazing right that does answer the question because you used to send that picture and i was like is that a platypus yeah it is a platypus <laughs> That is so charming. I love it. It brings me joy. So much joy. Are there any other standouts in your collection that you like to brag about? Well, on my list of things I someday want to acquire, but right now are kind of out of my budget, the most expensive and rarest Colt button is called the Colt Rouge button. It has a top that screws off, and then it has a little container inside that was either rouge or perfume, like solid perfume. Oh my god. Amazing. Top looks like a cameo. It's got like a little profile head on it, but it's plastic, obviously. They run like upwards of a hundred bucks, so I haven't been able to justify it, but I really want one. That sounds awesome. <laughs> that's so, yeah, that's amazing. Other standout buttons. I do have a Ting that is pretty cool. I inherited some sewing stuff from my great aunt, who was an avid like home seamstress, but also traveled a fair amount. And in the, I want to say the 50s and 60s in England, there was a couple that painted casein, the milk protein button. They're just like plastic buttons, but they did hand paintings on them. Edith and Alan Brooks was the couple's name. And they are highly collectible. They did a lot of plant life. They did like little scenes of, you know, sailboats or other stuff. But I have three original cards of 
botanical buttons by them that my aunt got in England at the time for like 60 pence. Oh man. And now they sell for upwards of 40 bucks a button. Damn. Yeah. Damn. Return on investment. Return on investment for sure. I just got super lucky (laughs) that like the stars aligned for that to be in my collection. (laughs) And also just a gorgeous, like, art buttons just seems like such a fun thing. Yeah, they're, they're very lovely. Very intricately painted. I've compiled a list for you of some funny names for types of buttons that I thought you might enjoy. Yes! Absolutely, yes, please. Okay. Antiquarians, which you are. <laughs> Yay! But also, some buttons are. They're glass buttons with a U-shaped shank that was pushed into them with a little bit of glass that kind of sticks up between the sides of the shank. They're called antiquarians because the person who named them that figured that they were pretty old. (laughs) It's a solid choice. (laughs) Yeah. Aristocrats are a flat black glass button with a flat top that's been incised and then has had gold or silver brushed into it. So it stays in the incisions. They're supposed to look fancy. I guess that's why they're called aristocrats. Berries are a glass button that has a preformed piece fused to the top of it that looks kind of like the tip of a raspberry. It's just like little balls stuck together. Oh, I've seen those. I did not know they were just called berries. Berry tops. Yep. That makes sense. <laughs> a bird cage is a kind of shank, uh, usually found on china buttons. And it's kind of like, if you imagine a cone that has like four holes poked into it to make the sew-through holes, and that is fired onto the button front, which is hollow, so it does make sort of like a little cage on the back. Oh, neat. Dandelion water, which I thought was (laughs) hilarious. The name for like a button that has like a really thin gilt coating on it. Oh. And they sometimes called that gilt dandelion water because it had like so little gold in it. That's so, that's (laughs) such a, that's such a cutesy thing to say though. I love that. I don't think I've ever heard buttons referred to as like dandelion waters, but that was like a sort of a dig at other manufacturers during the time that they were made. <laughs> like, oh, that guy, he just uses dandelion water. <laughs> what a char- That's such a like a magical sounding dig, though. It is. Yeah. My cottage core insults. <laughs> cottage, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Glow bubbles are celluloid bubble tops where the celluloid is like sort of a shield that sticks up from the base. And then the base has like a foil or iridescent coating on it. So when you look through the top, it is sort of glowy. Oh, wow. Goofies. (laughs) Usually they're cellulose acetate, so um, like hard plastic. Realistic buttons. They used to sell them in sets. So there was like a teenager set or like a travel set. These were usually made in like the 40s and 50s. The teenager set has like a couple dancing and like a milkshake with two straws in it and (laughs) oh like themes yeah the travel set has like a little handbag and a shoe and like a handkerchief (laughs) they are pretty cute and fun to collect habitat buttons late 18th century buttons with real dead stuff under glass inside of them. Yes, I was literally gonna ask is this like a is like dead bug buttons? Uh Like hell yeah. Yeah dead bug, dead flower, moss They have not held up really well. Sometimes you'll hear this term used for like more recent buttons that have real dead stuff inside of them. I have one with like a tiny starfish embedded in lucite. Aww, I love that. May or may not count, I'm not sure. Igloo buttons are the rarest china button. It's like a disc with a sort of mound shape piece applied to the top that kind of looks like an igloo. (laughs) 
I guess. Oh, neat. And to sew through it, there's like a hole, two holes in the disc, and then the mound in the middle has like a tunnel through it. So you'd go like up through one hole, through the tunnel, and then down through the other hole. Oh, that's some wild engineering for a button. Again, I have seen them. I do not own one because I am not quite at a place to drop a hundred bucks on a button. <laughs> Moon glows are a little bit hard to describe, but when you see them, you'll know. They are colored glass buttons that have a thin layer of clear glass over them, so they look kind of like they've got like that moonstone glow or almost like, um, you know, like a star-cut sapphire? Yes. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, they're sort of like luminescent. They're really neat. I like them a lot. Poppers <laughs> are glass buttons, 1800s glass buttons made by Leo Popper. Leo Popper. <laughs> They often have like little bits of glitter embedded in them or marbling. And a lot of them have a sort of distinctive key shank, which is like a um, like a flat metal shank with a hole in it that's pushed into the glass. Oh, wow. And then gay 90s. Nice, nice. Nice. <laughs> 1890s ornate brass buttons that have a big glass jewel in the middle. Oh, okay. I've seen those. Yeah, they sure are gay 90s. <laughs> <laughs> sure are. Yes. It was the gay 90s. Everyone was gay in the 90s. <laughs> the 1890s. And then the last one I have on my list is whistles, which is a construction of button where there are two holes on the bottom, but only one hole on top. Okay, I've seen those too. They've confused me. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I have had to attach them onto cards and it sucks a little bit. <laughs> but I guess the, the theory was that because the one hole on top, sort of the thread is enclosed, it's supposed to make your button stay on longer, I guess, like protect the top thread. Oh, okay. Uh, you'll see them a lot in China, in vegetable ivory, sometimes in glass. They're kind of neat. Some people like to collect them as a as a set. Yeah, that's all my funny button names that I could think of. I loved all of them. Very romantic, these buttons. Yeah. <laughs> what is probably your number one piece of advice for people who want to get into collecting buttons? Find a local button club and join it. Most states have a state society, and within that state society, there will probably be local clubs. The best way to learn about buttons is to talk to people who have collected them for a long time and to see known examples of what materials look like in real life. Books are a great place to start if you can't access those things, if your state doesn't have a collecting society. I will say that as a 30-something-year-old person, I am in the probably bottom 10% of age of all button collectors that I've ever met. <laughs> there is a real fear that as the members and collectors age that the hobby will die off, so they are so happy to tell you about buttons. <laughs> One time I went to a button show with my mom when I was in Connecticut and everyone was like, oh, it's so nice. You brought your daughter. And my mom was like, oh, no, actually. <laughs> my daughter brought me. Uh <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's a really great place to start. The National Button Society, anyone can join. I think it's 30 bucks a year. You get five color bulletins with interesting articles about all different kinds of buttons mailed to your house. Highly worth it, in my opinion. They also, once you are a member, have a lot of online resources that you can use to learn about things. All of their bulletins are archived, so you can search through the database if there's something you want to know about specifically. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jesse. This has been a blast. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I enjoy the podcast so much. Everybody go check out Cherry Colored Twist, all one word, on Etsy for a delightful collection of vintage and antique buttons and thimbles and vintage clothing patterns patterns and other sewing accoutrement. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for teaching us so much about buttons. <laughs> You're so <laughs> welcome. Thank you for listening to me talk about buttons. <laughs> 
If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!